Section 40 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. Chapter 12, The Catholic South, by the Reverend W. E. Collins, Part 1. The great wave of revolution and reconstruction which was passing over northern Europe in the earlier half of the 16th century did not leave the South untouched. Though the first actual outbreak occurred beyond the Alps, the feeling to which it gave expression was not merely Teutonic. Many of the causes which led up to it were common to all Western Christendom. Some, as for instance the demand for liberty of opinion and free inquiry, were even more characteristic of Italy than of Germany. Accordingly, vigorous attempts arose in many parts of southern Europe to bring about a reformation in the church, attempts which were by no means a mere echo of the changes in the north. But they never obtained a really strong hold upon the affections of the common people, and never secured the friendship or even the neutrality of the civil power. And so, both in Italy and in the Iberian Peninsula, their suppression was only a question of time. By the year 1576, when the charges against Bartolome Carranza were finally adjudicated upon, they were practically at an end. Isolated cases of heresy still occurred, but there was no longer anything like an organized revolt against the doctrinal or disciplinary system of the papacy. In tracing the course of the reform movements of Southern Europe, we are dealing with forces which became more widely divergent as time went on. Men at first acted together who ultimately found themselves violently opposed to one another. Principles were adduced on the same side which proved in time to be sharply contrasted. The old-standing desire to curb the power of the curia and to vindicate the authority of general councils over the whole church joined hands in the earlier stages of the movement with the wider yet more individualistic aspirations of the Renaissance. Men who had come under the influence of the new spirit in any of its manifestations were able to work together at first, whether they strove to reconstruct a worn-out theology, or to abolish corrupt practices, or to restore the standard of personal devotion and moral conduct. It was only by degrees that the ascetic, the humanist, and the doctrinal reformer drifted into relations of antagonism, but this was the position ultimately reached, and a stronger line of division appeared as time went on. There were some who refused to take any step which would separate them from the communion of the church. As Carnesecchi expressed it, the Catholic religion was theirs already, and all that they desired was that it should be better preached. Others, however, felt compelled to withdraw from the fellowship of a corrupt society, still strenuously affirming that by doing so they had in no way departed from the unity of the church. Of the former, many were influenced by the doctrinal movement in its most extreme forms, and some even died for their opinions without giving way. Of the latter, many recognized that their action could only be justified by the immediate claims of Christian truth, but in spite of individual divergences, here was a real line of division, in southern Europe as in the north. 1. The Reformation in Italy so far as the movement was one of protest against practical abuses, the need for reform was not less widely felt in Italy than in Germany. Rodrigo Nino, the imperial ambassador to the Doge 
and seigniory, wrote in 1535 that there were few in Venice who were not more Lutheran than Luther himself with regard to such matters as the reform of the clergy and their secular state. Venice was no doubt exceptional, and the state of feeling there was not that of Italy as a whole. Nevertheless, vigorous efforts after practical reform had begun in other parts of Italy long before this. Adrian of Utrecht, Bishop of Tartosa, the friend of Erasmus and the former tutor of Charles V, ascended the papal throne in 1522 with a firm resolve to set the church in order and to begin with his own household. In many ways, he seemed well fitted for the task. A student of distinction, his uprightness, personal piety, and strictness of life were known to all men. And already, as legate in Spain, he had taken a vigorous part in the reform of the religious houses there. But in Rome, he proved to be quite helpless. Satisfied with the scholastic theology in which he was so great an adept, he did not understand the questionings which were beginning to stir the minds of others. The Romans had no fellow feeling for a man who never gave way to anger or to mirth, and to whom the treasures of sculpture in the Vatican were no more than pagan idols. The scholar who had done so much to foster learning at Louvain was to them only a stranger who knew no Italian, though he spoke Latin very well, for a barbarian. Moreover, the Curia was determined not to be reformed. Thus Adrian achieved nothing. He died unregretted in 1523, not without the usual suspicion of poison, and from that time forward every pope has been an Italian. But already an important movement had been inaugurated. Just before, or shortly after the accession of Adrian VI, a number of earnest-minded men, clergy and laity, had banded themselves together at Rome in the famous Oratory of Divine Love, to work and pray for the purification of the church. Their leaders were Giovanni Pietro Carafa, afterwards Pope Paul IV, and the Count Gaetana da Tiena, who was subsequently canonized. The society consisted of 50 or 60 distinguished men, including, amongst others, Jacopo Sadoletto, Giamatteo Ghiberti, Latino Giovanali, Girolamo and Luigi Lipomano, and Giuliano Dati. They held their spiritual exercises in the church of Santi Silvestro e Dorotea, of which Dante was curate, and consulted together on the evils of the day. In 1524, Gaetano withdrew to form a new order of clerks regular, who were presently joined by Carafa, and came to be known as Theatines from his see of Teata, Gieti in the Abruzzi. But the original society still continued to meet until it was dispersed by the sack of Rome in 1527. Many of its former members, including Carafa and Ghiberti, met again at Venice, where they came under the influence of the Senator Gasparo Contarini. By degrees, others were admitted to their consultations, including Gregorio Cortese, the abbot of San Giorgio Maggiore, Pietro Bembo, and Luigi Priuli, and subsequently Bruccioli, the Florentine exile, the learned scholar Marcantonio Flaminio, and the Englishman Reginald Pole. Contarini, still a layman, became from this time forward the leading spirit among them. When the enlightened Alessandro Farnese became Pope as Paul III, 1534, he found this group of zealous men ready to his hand. Contarini was made a cardinal at his first creation, and Sotoletto, Carafa, and Pole received the purple in the following year. 
1537, when he appointed a commission to suggest measures for the reform of the church, most of its members were chosen from this quarter, the names being those of Contarini, Carafa, Sadoletto, Pol, Fregoso, Aleander, Ghiberti, Cortese, and Tommaso Badia. The fruit of their labors, the famous Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia, was unsparing in reprobation of abuses and rich in practical suggestions. But although a few efforts were made to simplify the procedure of the Curia, the forces of inertia proved too strong, and the Concilium was little more than a dead letter. In after years it fell into bad odor, partly owing to its damaging admissions, partly because the Lutherans had taken it up. Moreover, Carafa came in time to suspect many of his former associates of heresy, and after he became pope, the work was placed on the Index Librorum Prohibitorum of 1559. But even had it been otherwise received, it could not have stayed the tide. The revolt against abuses had already opened the way for movements of a more destructive character. The new opinions were already making their appearance south of the Alps. Italy, always a land of popular movements, was in many ways predisposed to welcome the new opinions. Some of them had been foreshadowed there, and revolt against the papacy was to its peoples no new thing. The Cathari of the north, with their Manichaean and anti-Trinitarian tendencies, had long died out, but the Valdenses, although by no means so numerous as formerly, were still to be found in the valleys of Piedmont and Calabria. The movements of the 16th century in Italy were, however, entirely unconnected with these, and the impulse as a whole came from without. There is indeed one notable exception. Pietro Speciale of Cittadella finished his great work De Gratia Dei in 1542, but he tells us with obvious sincerity that he had formulated his theory of justification and grace thirty years earlier, before Luther had begun to preach. In the main, he agrees with that of Luther, but he resolutely asserts the freedom of the will and repudiates the Lutheran teaching on this subject. And although he speaks strongly against particular abuses, he does not undervalue the church system of his day. The old man was thrown into prison in 1543, escaped six years afterwards by the help of two Anabaptists, and joined their party, and subsequently made a formal recantation in prison. But Speciale stands alone, and it is clear that the doctrinal revolt as a whole came from the north. The intercourse between Italy and Germany was very close, and a continual stream of traders and students flowed in both directions. At Venice there was a large Teutonic colony, having its center in the Fondaccio dei Tedeschi. The imperial army which invaded Italy in 1526 contained a large number of Lutherans and with Georg von Frunsberg's Lonsknechte, there came the scholar Jakob Ziegler, later known in Venice as Luther's lieutenant. The Commonwealth of Letters ignored national boundaries, and there was a brisk correspondence between Luther and Zwingli and their admirers in Italy. So early as 1519, Luther's works were being sold in Lombardy by Francesco Calvi, or Minicchio, a bookseller of Pavia, who had procured a stock from Froben at Basel. In the following year, as we learn from a letter of Burchard von Schenk, they were eagerly purchased at Venice. And Marino Sadnuto notes in his diary that a seizure of them had been made at the instance of the patriarch, 
although not until part of the stock had been disposed of. Writings of Luther, Melanchthon, and others were presently translated into Italian, and being issued anonymously or under fictitious names, they circulated widely. Thus Luther's sermons on the Lord's Prayer appeared anonymously before 1525, and Melanchthon's Loci Communes about 1534 under the title E Principii della Theologia by Ipofilo de Terra Nigra, while other tracts of Luther's were subsequently tacked on to the posthumously issued works of Cardinal Federico Fregoso. In ways such as these, the opinions of Luther spread, and in a less degree, those of Zwingli. There were many who were ready to adopt them in whole or in part. A hermit who invade against priests and friars at Venice in 1516 can hardly be called a Lutheran, but Fra Andrea of Ferrara, who preached at Christmas 1520 at San Marco and in the open air, is expressly said to have followed the doctrine of Martin Luther. So did a Carmelite friar, Giambattisto Pallavicino, who preached at Brescia in Lent 1527 and others elsewhere. There were three heretics at Mirandola in 1524, of whom nothing else is known, but the Florentine physician Girolamo di Bartolomeo Buonagrazia, when proceeded against in 1531, confessed that he had been in correspondence with Luther in 1527 and accepted his doctrine. Nor was Vingli without supporters. The letters of Agidio della Porta an Austin friar of Como, a center of heresy as early as the time of Julius II, proved that he and some of his fellows were ready to leave Italy and throw in their lot with Zwingli in 1525 to 6. In 1531, a native of Como who had spent three years beyond the Alps was preaching against the current doctrine of the Eucharist. About the same time, priests at Como were laying hands on others who were to administer the Eucharist in both kinds. One of them, Vincentio Massaro, is said to have taken a fee of fifteen ducats from all whom he ordained, and a letter written in 1530 by Francesco Negri of Bassano, who had fled from a Benedictine house at Padua, and joins Vingli, and who afterwards drifted to Anabaptism, gives the names of many priests in North Italy whom he reckoned as brethren. The disaffected were very numerous. According to the ambassador Francesco Contarini, the Lutherans of Germany boasted in 1535 that their sympathizers in Italy alone would make an army sufficient to deliver them from the priests, and that they had enough friends in the monastic orders to intimidate all who were opposed to them. This, of course, is a violent exaggeration, and in Italy also popular rumor magnified the danger. Yet even so, it was not slight. The reforming movement was especially strong in certain well-defined centers, the chief being Venice and its territories, Ferrara, Modena, Naples, and Lucca. In Venice, where foreigners were many and toleration was a principle of the state, the reform soon made its appearance and before long found a home. Measures of precaution or repression were demanded by the patriarch on behalf of the Roman Curia, but as late as 1529 the signory was able to certify that, excepting for the tolerated German conventicles, the city was free from heresy. Soon afterwards, however, in a report to Clement VII on the subject, Carafa mentions, amongst other evils, the fact that many friars had fallen into heresy and, in particular, the disciples of a certain Franciscan, now dead. 
Of these, he names Girolamo Galateo, Bartolomeo Fonzio, and Alessandro de Piero di Sacco. The Bishop of Chieti was thereupon commissioned by a brief of May 9, 1530, to proceed against Galateo, and from this time forward the extirpation of heresy was the ruling passion of his life. He it was who procured from Pope Paul III the bull Liset ab Anitio, July 21, 1542, reorganizing the Roman Inquisition on the basis of that of Spain. He was its first head, and in 1555, as Pope Paul IV, he completed the extension of its power over the whole of Italy. Galateo was already in prison on suspicion of heresy for certain sermons preached Bible in hand at Padua, but under the lenient system of the Venetian Inquisition, he was soon at liberty. Carafa now commenced a new process against him. He was found guilty and sentenced to degradation and death. This led to a contest with the seigneury, who delivered him from Carafa's hands and consigned him to prison. Here he had been for seven years when, on the intercession of a friendly senator, he was allowed to make his defense in writing. This confession is remarkable. It is Augustinian rather than Lutheran in doctrine. It affirms the doctrine of saving faith without any extravagant depreciation of free will or of good works. The system of the church as a whole is defended, and the pope is the chief of shepherds. Galateo was allowed out on bail, but directed to amend his confession on some points. He refused to do this, and three years later was cast into prison again, where he died in 1541. Of Galateo's two companions, Alessandro was already in prison and is not heard of again. Bartolomeo Fonzio had already incurred the enmity of Carafa by his advocacy of Henry VIII's divorce. He managed, however, to clear himself of heresy and soon left Venice for Germany, where he was employed as a papal agent. But he fell under the suspicion of Aleander and others by his intercourse with the Lutherans, and not without reason, for it was probably he who translated Luther's letter on Christlichen Adel into Italian. On retiring from the papal service, he was transferred by Clement VII from the Order of Friars Minor to the Third Order of St. Francis, and permitted to return to Venice. But he was still an object of suspicion, which was not diminished by a little catechism which he produced. After years of wandering, he settled at Padua, and opened a school, but it was broken up by order of Carafa, now Inquisitor-General. Thence he passed to Cittadella, where Reformed opinions were widespread, and again began to teach, soon winning the love of the people. But in May 1558 he was again arrested by order of the Dieci, and condemned, after four years' examination, for the general unsatisfactoriness of his teaching. He was called upon to abjure, but refused then gave way to persuasion and recanted, then recanted his recantation. At length he was sentenced to death at the stake. The sentence was, as usual, commuted into one of drowning, and he was cast into the sea on August 4, 1562. Meanwhile, other teachers were going further in the direction of Lutheranism than Galateo and Fonzio. Giulio della Rovera, an Austin friar of Milan got into trouble at Bologna in 1538 for a course of sermons preached there. Three years later, he came to Venice and preached at San Cassiano in Lent, staying in the house of Cilio Secondo Curioni, of whom more presently. 
His doctrine was attacked, he abjured, and was sentenced to be imprisoned and then banished. He escaped and fled to the Grisons, where the reform movement had already taken root, the main impulse coming from the Swiss cantons. Here he ministered, generally at Pasciavo, until his death in 1571. The Florentine scholar Antonio Bruccioli, banished from his own city, had come to Venice and set up a printing press. In 1532, two years before Luther's German translation was completed, he published his Italian translation of the whole Bible, based upon Santi Pagnani's learned Latin version from the original languages, and this he followed up subsequently by a voluminous commentary. In 1546, he was in the prisons of the Inquisition, accused of publishing heretical books, and although it may be doubted whether anything of his could justly be so described, his troubles at the hands of the Holy Office ended only with his life. A more striking personality was that of Baldo Lupitino of Albona in Istria, uncle of the well-known Monte of Lachich, M. Flaccius Illyricus. He was a conventional Franciscan and had held the office of provincial, an acute scholar and a devout man. Accused of preaching heresy in the Duomo at Cerso, he fell into the hands of the Venetian Inquisition in 1541, and although the Lutheran princes interceded on his behalf, he was sentenced to imprisonment for life, it being clear from depositions made then and subsequently that he was a Lutheran. In 1547, he was again in trouble for preaching to his fellow prisoners and was sentenced to be beheaded, his body to be burned, and his ashes to be cast into the sea to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. The doge relaxed the sentence, but in 1555 he was again accused, and the following year he was degraded and drowned. Nor were disciples lacking. The letters of Aleander, when Nuncio at Venice, speak of a great religious association of artisans existing there in 1534, the leaders being one Pietro Bonavita of Padua, a carpenter, a French glover, and several German Lutherans. The two first mentioned were taken and imprisoned for life, but Aleander continues to lament the progress of heresy and the apathy of the Senate. We learn more about the Reformed in Venetian lands from the letters of Baldessari Altieri of Aquila and the Abruzzi, a literary adventurer who came to Venice about 1540, served Sir Edmund Hastwell, the English ambassador, till 1548, and after two years of wandering, died at Ferrara in August 1550. He acted as a kind of secretary to the Reformed, and wrote on behalf of the Brethren of the Church of Venice, Vicenza, and Treviso, to Luther, Bullinger, and others, begging for the good offices of the Lutherans with the Venetian government. The Brethren are, he says, in the sorest need, and cannot improve their state, whilst the Signory allows them no liberty. They have no public churches, each is a church to himself. There are plenty of apostles, but none properly called. All is disorder, and false teachers abound. Nevertheless, they adhere to Lutheran doctrine, as against the sacramentaries, and do not despair, since God can raise up new Luthers amongst them. But their appeals were in vain. The Lutheran princes had their hands full already, and the Swiss were not likely to help those who sided with Luther against them. In the end, their associations were broken up. Many were punished. Many more gave way. Those who were left seemed to have gravitated towards Anabaptist and speculative views of a very pronounced kind. 
It is hard to form a precise idea of the number of the Reformed in Venice, but they were evidently very numerous. Processes for heresy were very common, especially after Giovanni della Casa became nuncio in 1547 with orders to expedite the work. Of the records which survive, many are at Udine, but at Venice alone there still remain over 800 processes for Lutheranism between 1547 and 1600, and more than a 100 more for Anabaptism, Calvinism, and other heresies. The greater number are from Venice itself, but Vincenza, Brescia, and Cittadella are represented, with a number of smaller places. Ferrara, long famous for learning and the fine arts, was a center of hardly less importance, though in quite a different way. Ercola, the son of the reigning Duke Alfonso, had married René, the daughter of Louis Twelfth of France in 1528, and succeeded his father six years later. Rene had already imbibed the new ideas from her cousin Margaret of Navarre and from her governess Madame de Soubise, poetess and translator of the Psalms. The latter, with the whole of her distinguished family, followed her to Ferrara, and as most of Rene's suite, which included Clement Moreau, the poet, were of the same way of thinking, her court became a rallying point for the Reformed. From France came the statesman Hubert Languet, and the poet Leon Jamais, from Germany, the court physician Johann Sinopius, and his brother Killian, who acted as a tutor to René's children. There were also Alberto Lolio and the canon Cilio Calignani, joint founders of the Academy of the Elevati, the physician Angelo Manzioli, whose famous Zodiacus Vitae, published by him under the pseudonym Marcello Palangenio Stellato, poured ridicule on the monks and clergy and Fulvio Peregrino Morato, who had preceded Killian Sinopius in his office, but had been banished in 1539, perhaps for Lutheran opinions. He returned to the university in 1539, bringing with him his more famous daughter, Olympia Morata, an infant prodigy who became a distinguished woman. She became an intimate member of Rene's household, corresponded on equal terms with the most learned men of the day, passed through a skeptical phase to devout Lutheranism, and finally, having incurred her patron's anger, married a German physician named Gruntler and accompanied him to his own land. Nor were René and Olympia the only well-known women who adopted Reformed views there. Amongst others who did so were Lavinia della Rovera, grandniece of Pope Julius II, and the Countess Giulia Rangoni, a daughter of the House of Bentivoglio. One other resident at the court must be mentioned, the learned Cretan who took the name of Francesco Porto. He was a man of great caution and reticence, but devoted to the cause of reform. After studying at Venice and Padua and teaching for ten years at the University of Modena, he came to Ferrara in 1546 to take the place of Killian Sinopius. The complaints of the Pope led to his expulsion in 1551. He was again with René as her reader in 1553, but then retired to Venice and ultimately to Geneva. Hither also at various times came students and others whose lives were in danger elsewhere. Among these was the Piedmontese Cilio Secundo Curioni, a latitudinarian and a student of the Reformed doctrines from his youth. After several remarkable escapes from capture, he fled to Padua, thence, after three years as professor in the university, to Venice, and thence to Ferrara. Through René's influence, he received a chair at Lucca while Ocino was there, but after a short and troublous stay, 
had to take refuge beyond the Alps. But Ferrara gave shelter to a greater fugitive than any of Italian birth. Early in 1536, René was visited by Calvin, who had come to Italy under the assumed name of Espaville. We have no trustworthy account of the visit, but it evidently made the deepest impression among René and her court. Apparently, he celebrated the communion for them in private. Certainly, he incited them to protest against the accustomed services. In fact, on Holy Saturday, April 14, when the officiating priest in one of the chief churches of Ferrara presented the cross for the veneration of the faithful, one of René's choristers, a youth of twenty known as Jihanat, or Zanetto, broke out in open blasphemies against what he regarded as idolatry. The incident was probably prearranged in order to cause a popular outbreak, but it is clear that the people were scandalized. Under pressure from Rome, Ercole took steps to punish the offenders, but he found that the whole suite of his wife were involved, while René invoked the French power to protect her servants. The matter dragged on for some months, but at length, as the principal person implicated, probably Calvin himself, escaped from his guards on the road to Bologna, not without suspicion of their connivance, it was allowed to drop. Henceforward, Calvin was René's spiritual advisor, and she was in frequent correspondence with him. Under his influence, she refused in 1540 to make her confession or to hear Mass any longer. This does not seem to have involved an open breach with the Church. There were many more who were equally remiss in their religious duties. Ercola tried to avoid taking action and winked at her opinions so long as she and her associates avoided giving open scandal. Moreover, when Paul III paid a visit to Ferrara, René met him on friendly terms and obtained from him a brief dated July 5, 1543, by which she was exempted from every jurisdiction but that of the Holy Office. But she disguised her Calvinism less and less while the activity of the Inquisition was daily increasing, and at length the pressure of the Holy See compelled the Duke to act. In 1554, he applied to the French king for an able and energetic teacher for his wife, and the inquisitor Matthew Ory was sent. As his exhortations made no impression, she was put on her trial for heresy and condemned to imprisonment, 24 of her servants being likewise sentenced. But a week afterwards, on September 13, it was announced that she had abjured and received pardon. The documents are lost, so that it is hard to say precisely what occurred. It is certain that Renée made her confession and received the Eucharist, equally so that she was at heart a Calvinist, and went on in her old courses until after Ercola's death, she retired in 1560 to Montargis and became a protector of the French Huguenots. End of section 40. Recording by Tad Davis.